Thank you, Robert. We are standing on holy ground wherever we are. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we are standing on holy ground. This is one of the great affirmations of our scriptures, that God is to be found wherever we are. And yet there are moments of particular importance. I do want to thank uh, Robert um, and Cheryl for your wonderful ministry to us in music today and uh, last week. Um, and of course to uh, Sherry and to Alan Furing um, for your ministry of technology um, to us today. You never thought I would say ministry and technology in the same sentence before, but there I am. Um, and of course uh, to Vanessa and Heidi and all who are with us. The holy ground of the Mount of the Transfiguration. The story that occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and today, today's gospel reading from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, in which Jesus is portrayed as going up to a high mountain with Peter, James, and John, the triumvirate, as it were, the uh, three closest uh, disciples. And they're an encounter with Moses, the preeminent, paramount uh, prophet of Israel, then and now, and Elijah, the prophet who is understood to be the forerunner, the harbinger, of the arrival of a Messiah. The encounter between Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the theophany, the great showing forth of God's love and the ineffable presence, this great light and bright cloud that will surround them, the sacred ground indeed. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And as he was transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could possibly bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is, it is good that we are here with you. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified, overcome with awe. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice saying, This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and they saw no one, no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Then as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Amen. This is part of the uh, idea of the great secret uh, that Mark wants to have people understand frequently throughout the gospel. After some experience, like the transfiguration or a healing or miraculous feeding, he'll say to the individuals, don't tell anybody about what has happened until the Son of Man, referring to himself in the third person, is this enigmatic apocalyptic figure 
who would appear on clouds from heaven. Do not tell anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The sense that you can only understand the meaning of an event, such as the transfiguration or other moments in Jesus' life, retrospectively, through the lens of the betrayal and the denial and the crucifixion and the burial and then the resurrection of Jesus. It's only ex post facto that you can understand what's happening in a current moment. It's only in looking back and reflecting that we understand the meaning. This is true of our lives in general, I think. Very often when something is occurring, we're not really aware or appreciate the full potency, the real power uh, of that moment until in later days or years later, reflecting back upon it, we see how it really figured um, into the shaping of our lives. So in this moment, going up to pray, Jesus is depicted regularly as going up to a high place in order to pray. This is true in all of the scriptures, old and new, that a high place out in nature is where one has the greatest opportunity to come into contact with God, to experience the bright, shining presence of God, a theophany, the showing forth of the presence of God. Moses at Sinai in the giving of the commandments, the still small voice speaking to Elijah in the great thundercloud and whirlwind and earthquake again at Mount Sinai, and here Moses and Elijah appearing, placing clearly in the minds of Peter, James, and John that Jesus is in the tradition of Moses and of Elijah, that they precede him and he fulfills them and their vision, their understanding, the nature, the purposes of God, this transfiguration, echoing almost the words from his baptism. At his baptism, coming up out of the water, a voice from heaven cries out as the Spirit descends, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here, the voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. In the first person, addressing Jesus in the baptism, and now here in the Second person, this is my beloved son. The third person, this is my beloved son. News not meant just for Jesus, but news, a proclamation of God's purpose for Peter, James, and John to more fully understand the power of Jesus' presence. Like Peter, all of us want to come up with some practical response. But it's not possible to stay at the mountaintop. The mountaintop has power only in the extent to which we return to the valley and let that bright, shining light transform the way we see the world where it's really lived. And so, in this case, they will come down and Jesus will return immediately um, to his healing ministry. That bright moment enables us to see differently and thereby to live differently. Now, unlike Peter, James, and John and the other apostles, the great apostle Paul 
did not know Jesus personally. He wasn't part of the entourage that followed him. He was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, in the earliest days, Paul was among those who persecuted this nascent group of Jews, a nascent body which would come to be called uh, the church, present at the stoning of Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church. Paul is portrayed as holding the coats of those who threw the stones to kill Stephen. But he has this remarkable experience. Again, the theophany on the road um, to Damascus, and Christ calls out to him and says, Saul, Saul, his name from birth, why are you persecuting me? And In that experience, Paul, now known as Paul, is given a new purpose in his life. It's not a conversion of Paul, it's the, it's the change, it's the call upon Saul to be the great apostle to the Gentiles. So he's not personally acquainted with Jesus, but through this incredible experience, is a deep, deep understanding of the nature of God's love. And so to the Corinthians in this first letter, he wrote, if I speak in the tongues mortal and or angelic, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understanding and have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, give so much, give it all that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Agape is the Greek word for love that Paul uses here. Greek is such a rich language. It has uh, seven, eight, nine, depending on how you count them, words uh, for love. The three with which we're most familiar, of course, are eros, physical or personal uh, love, philia, familial or brotherly, sisterly love, sturge, which is a love for the family, um, or pragma, which is a love that continues um, without end, philolufia, which is self-love, caring um, for the self, lupe, which is a fanciful, frivolous, fun kind of love and agape, which is this sense of an unending love, a love that is beyond itself, that is beyond self-interest, comes to be known within the Christian community as the nature of God's love, that unconditional love in which we understand ourselves uh, to be joined. It is this term love that, um, that Paul uses. Love, 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 bum, bum, bum. Love, 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 bum, bum, bum. Love, 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 love. All you need is love. Boop, 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 boom. All you need is love. Boop, 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 boom. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. So sang the Beatles. Wasn't the biggest Beatles fan in the world. I'm more of a 
Roy Orbison and uh, Johnny Cash, Grateful Dead and a Jimi Hendrix kind of person, but you know, you can't escape the Beatles if you lived in America in the last half of the 20th century and now in the opening decades of the 21st. And a lot of the times when I would hear that love, I would think how insipid it was. This is the problem with pop music, I think. It's bouncy and light and it's very positive. And, you know, I'm more of a curmudgeon. So um, I'm not a big fan of it, but I also thought, no, no, it, it takes more than love. Love is not what makes the world go round. Lennon and McCartney may be wrong. But then again, if you think about it, not in the way we use the word love today, which is often insipid and vacuous and almost empty of meaning because of its overuse, I do think that this is what Paul is driving at in his use of this very different kind of love, agape. This kind of love, agape, is patient. Agape, this kind of disinterested love in the sense that it is not self-interested, but is almost an objective life force that doesn't depend upon you or anyone else. It is, as First John will say in the fourth chapter, God is agape. Not a feeling, but a sense of the living presence of God, the force, the power, the purpose of God. This agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Now you see, eros, well you can be all of those things. In fact, I think do a lot of eros leads to all of those things. It's interesting, you know, to have a true fulfillment of eros, that is to say, a personal, physical love between people, it really does require uh, that we move beyond boasting and and prejudice, and we have a vulnerability to admit that I'm messed up, and I'm not perfect, um, and frankly, neither are you. If we can all come to the place of vulnerability to recognize how we need each other. Agape does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. Agape does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That helps you uh, appreciate, I think, me, and does, I know, what he's saying here. If we're talking about love the way we use it in current and colloquial parlance in the 21st century, well, that kind of love doesn't bear all things, and it doesn't necessarily believe and hope, and very often it fails rather than enduring all things. Agape never ends. As for prophecies, well, they will come to an end. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge will pass away. For now I know only in part, 
and we prophesy only in part. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will come to an end. When the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like, an a chi- like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up my childish ways. Now we see in a mirror, dimly, only partially. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, pistis, elpis, and love, agape, abide. And the greatest of these is agape. Not a simpering, timid, weak emotion, but a love which is indeed the very life force of the universe and is the expression of God's will and purpose, desire and fondest dream uh, for all of humanity. That love, that agape love, that expresses itself not just is the unconditional love, that is to say, that God loves you or me because of, not because of any outward circumstance, because it is God's nature to love. It is the bright and shining affirmation that we are held in the embrace of God. We think that we have to go in search of God when in fact God has come in search of you and me and will not let you go, will not let us go. So this love, when seen in public, looks like justice because it is a society's expression of the unconditional love and care for each person. That love which God has for you and for me, that's what Paul is driving at here. This is not the sentiment that belongs in a greeting card that you can pick up next to a Snoopy card for Valentine's Day. I love Snoopy, but Snoopy's not where it's at when it comes to Valentine. Paul is where it's at. Because Valentinus, having been changed, converted, called as Saul was on that Damascus road, Valentinus in the north of Italy in the little town of Tinto was called to Christ and called others with him and lived faithfully. Not simpering, not weak, not vacuous, but strong and valiant, courageous, bold even. Agape, is what makes it possible for us to be patient and kind. Agape is what makes it possible for us to speak the truth in love. Agape 
is what makes it possible for us to face down the forces of oppression. Agape is what empowers us to act, to reshape the world in God's vision. Agape is the reason that we can stand four square for justice and to welcome in the reign of God's peace, agape. Agape is not what we aspire for. Agape is the reality in which we live. Faith, hope, love, agape, these three, the greatest of them, agape. Amen.